Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about Twisted Metal, the live-action television series based on the classic PlayStation game of the same name. The series aired on Peacock, and my guest is costume designer Liz Vestola. Liz, welcome to Below the Line. Thank you for having me. So excited to be here. I am also excited to talk about this. Joining me in the co-host seat this week is Gianni DeMaia. Gianni is a fellow podcaster, host of the Bad Movies podcast, and a friend. But his most important contribution today is the fact that he is an avid player of the Twisted Metal game. Gianni, glad you could join us. I am very glad to be here. I have been a fan of Below the Line for forever. Almost as long as I've been a fan of Twisted Metal. Actually, I've been a fan of Twisted Metal far longer, but that's <laughs> beside the point. So uh, this is super exciting. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let me throw out a warning for listeners. Today's conversation will contain spoilers for the show. And spoiler out the gate, I really enjoyed this series. Now, when I first heard about it, it reminded me of Car Wars, a tabletop combat simulation that Steve Jackson Games released in 1980 and that I recall playing from my childhood. I have not, however, played Twisted Metal on PlayStation. Liz, how about you? What was your relationship with the video game before taking this gig? I was always aware of the game growing up. I played video games as a kid, but I had never actually played the game. So this was my first foray into the world. Johnny, we already established that you did play the game. Give our audience a little bit of context for folks who might not have played it as well. The, the whole Car Wars kind of comparison is not too far off from what I gather. Twisted Metal, particularly Twisted Metal Black, which is where I really came into the series because he used to just go over to friends' houses and play this game on like their PlayStation 2s or whatever. That was our experience of, of my childhood. So generally the way Twisted Metal works is it just creates like this sort of simulated environment in which you play one of these specific characters who have a very iconic sort of car and the car is decked out in basically things to make it a killing machine and you drive the car through these landscapes and you cause the utmost chaos and carnage and it sounds maybe redundant but it is the most fun particularly when you were the age I was when I was playing it somewhere around like the 10 or 11 year old. (laughs) But they all had like little tethers of story plots, very iconic characters who were all sort of like psycho or sociopathic in some, some adjacent form or one another. And their cars were all legendary iconic vehicles that people still remember today. So Twisted Metal just has like a very, very fun, uh, like sort of place and I think like a lot of particularly PlayStation fans hearts. So Liz coming into it, where do you go with that? Well, I think first and foremost, you have to dive into the lore and the history of the game. You have to do everything you can to really immerse yourself in what the game looks like, what it feels like, what people who have played it say about it, what the experience is just sort of being in the environment. And I think that, you know, in this day and age with so many fandoms having a whole history being recorded and written online and constantly updated, and you could watch people on Twitch, you could watch people on YouTube, you know, experiencing the game in real time. I think that it 
it was a tremendous benefit to us, especially, you know, for those of us who, you know, had never played the game. And when you're coming into a project that has a previously established IP, I think first and foremost, you want to just do as much due diligence and service to its previous world as possible. And then from there, you have to turn your gaze, you know, to some extent to what the project is at hand and what the intentions are of the people currently making the, sh you know, the show or whatever it may be. And make sure you're always servicing the story and the characters that are presented to you now. And I think that the most successful, you know, to whatever extent that means, iterations are when you're able to bring the fandom along, but then also catch in new viewers, new audience members, introduce them to the world, but then take it to a new place. And it's a really hard tightrope to walk, you know, because I think inevitably there might be people who, you know, I mean, this is a really special franchise. I think that a lot of people have really strong feelings about it, especially, you know, people my generation or a little bit older attach it to their childhood, attach it to, you know, playing video games in their basement in the 90s. And that's a really special place, I think, for especially for millennials or, you know, or older. Yeah, you just want to you just want to approach it with care, with as much care as possible. You mentioned Twitch. Is that where you're watching people play the game? Twitch is, I think, a really interesting platform for designers or, you know, any kind of creative professional working in film and TV, trying to kind of step into a series because I find it really um, useful because you're able to watch people play the game and comment on it and experience it. And then there's this whole like chat audience experience too. So it's almost like they're seeing the game being played out, but then you're a lot of the best Twitch streamers have a very good eye on their chat and you're seeing people comment on it. And that sort of like communal experience, I think, is really close to the way the audiences might experience the TV show, you know, where it's sort of like you're watching it, but you're on X, formerly known as Twitter, or you're on, you know, any kind of subreddit or whatever it is. I think that kind of communal engagement is really important to keep an eye on. Now, Liz, did they also give you guys PS5s you could play it yourself when you were prepping for this? Okay, so I'm one of the lucky ones. My husband and I were on that PS5 launch like hawks. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> I uh, we felt very <laughs> dedicated to grabbing that console when it came out, and rightfully so. But it's interesting you mentioned that because... You know, often when you're on a long running show um, over many months, the studio or the network will sometimes send in some swag every now and then to kind of keep the hype up. You know, like as soon as you're either midway or three quarters of a way, you might get a little swag bag at your desk, like keep going, you know, or you're a part of the family. And so we would get these little swag deliveries from Sony and they were always, you know, instead of being branded with Sony Pictures Television, of course, they were branded as a PlayStation swag. And every time a swag bag would drop, we'd sort of, you know, cross our fingers. <laughs> 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 you know, with the PS5 console, 
Well, we just, you know, of course, so thankful for the water bottles and the hats. And yeah, I'm sure. I have a notebook. You know, my two-year-old daughter now has a little bracelet. Like all of that is excellent. But I think we were, you know, always kind of peering in, being like, how big's the bag? <laughs> Does it look like it could uh, hold a PS5? Unfortunately not, but um, <laughs> maybe in the future. <laughs> If I may, I because I wanted to ask some specific questions in regards to some of the character designs, because obviously, I mean, you're dealing with very iconic characters, but you're also dealing with like pretty much a snapshot. Like I remember from playing Twisted Metal Black, a lot of it is just you really have like that one image of the character. You have some little snippets of like their sort of persona in these cutscenes, but predominantly you're playing third person. So just the cameras behind the vehicle itself. So you don't actually get a lot of like intimate moments with the character specifically, but still a lot of people remember Twisted Metal Black for the iconic sort of visual uh, representation of the characters. And obviously everyone remembers Sweet Tooth and I'm sure we're going to talk about Sweet Tooth at length in a minute, but what I was really more curious about was how much leeway they gave you specifically because, you know, so for example, obviously John Doe, in my recollection of Twisted Metal Black, when I met him, he's like shirtless and has all these tattoos and all this. But the look that you created for Anthony Mackie very much feels like it fits in whatever that style of character is, even though it's totally different. Like, cause he, I'm pretty sure he has a high C shirt underneath that vest. And I was like, I was wondering what these sort of inspiration you took or pulled from in order to kind of create those looks that felt like they were those characters, but were definitely on their own sort of path. I think it starts with understanding that the art form you're currently working in is scripted television. So as soon as I took that step to really understand what the world was like, I had to take a step back then and just dive into the scripts and understand who John Doe was in the world that was being created. Because if I was only, you know, sort of bringing along the iteration of him from the game, but it didn't quite fit into what Michael Jonathan Smith and the writers and Anthony were creating, then that would be really kind of pull you right out of the world. So, you know, I had to kind of just trust my brain in knowing that I had all that research and, you know, all those amazing compilations of all the cutscenes on YouTube, you know, of all the characters that'll take you through all of the games having watched all of that, screen grabbed all of that, sorry, YouTube, and just kind of prioritize the character that was at hand and know that, okay, so it's Anthony Mackie. Understand what the characterization that he's bringing. Understand that we're dealing in a world that stopped in 2001, 2002. So it has to really feel like it's in sync with late 90s y2k clothing practices and you know i won't i won't even want to necessarily say fashion because it, it's not high you know high fashion in that time isn't really doesn't really have to do with what you know <laughs> our world but let's call it you know dress practice right so just create the character but be able to kind of dip into different aspects of him and you know i think it was really my job when I first started the project to be able to kind of assemblage both iterations of the story together. Michael Jonathan Smith really wanted myself, the production designer, prop designer, to be able to advise 
him, the writers and, and everybody on the, on the creative level to what can we cherry pick out and what can we kind of meld into his character so that it still feels like it's the same person from the game to some extent, but he's living in this world, this version of Twisted Metal. So yeah, John Doe in the game has a really like strong militaristic vibe. Um, I mean, he's shirtless. You definitely feel his musculature. So I knew we wanted to definitely get a feel for Anthony Mackie's athleticism and his build and his strength. But also, you know, the show is funny and the games are kind of funny. You know, there's definite humor there. And so the high C shirt that you mentioned, I mean, once we had kind of the color palette established, which was this really warm toned, you know, meant to sort of refer to the car, which is this really beautiful, warm orange color. Once we had that established and we, I knew, and we kind of, figured out that we wanted it to be this gold tone shirt for him. I mean, it really felt like a heroic color and great for his, um, just great for him in terms of, you know, his, what would look good on his complexion and also with his car. And, and so once we kind of assigned that color palette to him, I thought to myself, you know, it would kind of be a bummer if it was just a plain t-shirt because that is not what people were wearing in the late 90s and the early 2000s. I mean, it was just brands galore and logos in a cheeky way. You know, there were like no fear and big dog and, you know, all <laughs> these kind of like logos in either food and drink or, you know, cars or athletic wear that had a kind of humor to it. And high C <laughs> just felt like the right tone of a cute, funny little image that actually has to do with kind of the high def, high tone of the show. So like literally and figuratively, it just felt like it fit in in a weird way. And so, you know, I pitched it and <laughs> everyone's like, yeah, sure. And, you know, the network and the studio basically said, well, if you can get them to sign our contract, you know, go for it. But let's see if that happens. <laughs> and Pisces is actually a brand under the Coca-Cola umbrella. And so that felt like a huge undertaking. But we had an incredible member of our department, Tiara, our key costumer, took it under her wing and basically had to like find the high C guy still working at the company in charge of press <laughs> and pitch him this idea to have, you know, our main character wear a high C shirt. And we wouldn't always see it, but sometimes you would see it. And he agreed, which was incredible. And of course we had to do all of the, you know, front end work of like making the t-shirt and making sure we had a logo that was correct to the period. And then, doing an incredible amount of very intricate distress work to then take the logo down. But the funny thing is maybe at the 11th hour, like a week or so before shooting, the gentleman from High C called Tierra and said, I just want to make sure, is this show violent? Because you know, I want to make sure it's not a violent, we're not putting the brand in violent scenes. And I was like... <laughs> So oh he was not someone who had played the game then. He had <laughs> not played the game. He, I don't know if he necessarily read the script pages we sent. I mean, we really went for it to try to get Heisty on board. And I was just like, 
oh my gosh, please tell him like, (laughs) yeah, it's violent, but it's going on Captain America. Like, come on, you know, like it might be a good thing. And he, you know, kudos to him. He agreed, signed, it all went over well, but uh, yeah, that was the high C shirt was definitely a journey. (laughs) Yeah. Well, props to the whole Twisted Metal team, because I always describe Twisted Metal, and I was actually just talking to my brother about this, because he also binged the show along with me, and he loved it. And we were talking about it. I was like, yeah, I feel like the tone of Twisted Metal is like, it's like Barbie meets Death Race. And I think you guys <laughs> absolutely nailed that all the way through. From everybody top to bottom, including the production design team, the costume design team, the makeup it all feels like it fits in that world that you were describing. So really kudos to the whole team. Oh, thank you. I wanted to ask as well. So like a lot of characters are very similar to how they either appear or what they're after in the games. But then there's Raven, mm-hmm. who is wildly different, not just in performance, but also in her look. I was curious, so because you were saying it starts, you know, from pretty much the script writing team. I don't want to, you know, put words in your mouth, but it seems like that it started with the page and then it was the ideas that sort of expand beyond that. And I was curious, was there always like sort of the angle to subtly layer in more Raven stuff or are we waiting for season two or what what, what was the sort of costumey pitch that you guys were fiddling with on that one in particular? Yeah, that's interesting that you bring up Raven because for sure that character to me feels like we're, you know, dipping our toes into the character slightly from the games, but it is a real departure, you know, in terms of, I believe in the game, Raven is a high school goth girl. And, you know, I know she has like a little black dress and she's very sort of um, that classic, like late 90s, early 2000s kind of craft feel. Of, right. But, you know, once we knew two things, which were the characterization and the way the character functions in the story as a real powerful woman who is tasked to kind of flip the script on John and kind of lure him into this Walden city. But then, you know, we realize at the end of the season that she, um, well, we realized in the first episode, but we realized the extent of her motivations towards the end of the season that she had a much more, um, she just was in a real position of power in this story. And that coupled with the fact that it's, you know, the character is played by Nev Campbell, who is just, I mean, such an icon, right? And so sophisticated in how she presents herself and just the most lovely, I mean, what a, you know, the whole cast was incredible, but her kind of energy that she brought to the character it just I don't think it was ever the intention of any of us to bring that kind of like gothic teen world into this new version of Raven you know so yeah but the question is like could this be Raven down the line you know could this be a more adult sophisticated settled version of the character that has a little bit more, which I mean, I definitely would consider her one of the more fashionable characters in the show, you know, that has a little bit more self-possession and, you know, self-awareness in the world. And I think that was kind of the journey that, and the progression of the character that we saw. And I think the little details of, you know, having her kind of white, light blue, frothy, calm, safe, 
costume towards the beginning of the show segue into a much darker color palette, but a similar silhouette. And then just toe the line with the t- with the small, you know, we made the small silver version of her necklace that she wears in the game and have that be a nice length, which is actually a very dark, you know, anarchic symbol. <laughs> um, you know, when you're like, oh, that's a pretty necklace, kind of looks sort of tiny vest. And then you, when you really get into it, you're like, wait a minute, like, is that? <laughs> yeah, that, that necklace was really kind of the encapsulation of the whole ethos behind the costume. And yeah, those were sort of the decisions we made there and how we kind of decided to tackle that. It's cool because it seems like you guys are kind of like if you wanted to like give a flashback and explore, totally. maybe it fits like right into that that exact line, which is my way of just saying they should just green light season two now. You know, just give, <laughs> us, give us the good news. If you want to be the one to announce it on below the line, it's okay, it's okay with me. I'm sure it's okay. Oh, I wish I could. I wish I knew that far into the future. <laughs> Liz, I want to ask you about the character Sweet Tooth that mm-hmm. Gianni mentioned earlier. If people haven't seen the show, he's a psychotic clown, <laughs> but it's also iconic as an image for the game. And so I feel like this is one where it's less about interpretation into the new world than just trying to realize what people are expecting there. And so how did you approach that one maybe different than some of these other characters? Well, Sweet Tooth funnily enough, is really our like barometer. He's our tone setter for the whole costume scape, you know, and it's really wild to think that that costume is like the tone of the show. But I knew very, very, very early on that we were going to just bring him straight from the game. And then the question also was like, which game? Because he's had quite a few different looks throughout the series. And we were able to dip our toe into some of his earlier, you know, his uh, pink suit for his Vegas performance. (laughs) So the decision to have him wearing his look from Twisted Metal Black for most of the time was pretty much decided on very early on. I think that it's one of his looks to me that feels particularly menacing, but also it has, there have been a lot of depictions of it and drawings and and animations and then also cutscenes where you can really see a real body moving in the costume. And I think that that was very useful for us as well. You know, that being said, just because you bring a costume straight from the game to the screen doesn't mean that it's any less complicated or difficult. And in some ways, it's incredibly difficult. And Actually, there are questions to be answered that go, you know, so, so deep into the costume. And you kind of have to use the lore of the character and then again, use the environment that's around him to answer those questions. You know, so for example, first of all, if we're going to believe this as a guy, I mean, where is he getting all these pieces? Why is he wearing this costume like this? You know, what is... What are they? How is he putting this together? I think it was really important that the characters that don't have access to a powered, you know, more kind of classically civilized world behind these walled cities, it shouldn't feel necessarily like they have a tailor running around with them, right? So it's like, 
he definitely needed to feel like, okay, he's living in Vegas. You know, how did they come upon this mask? And maybe he just stuffed clown hair into it. And then his harness. Okay. Well, what's that about? Well, perhaps it's made out of belts. And for us, of course, it's custom made, but it should look as though it's made out of different belts. And then what are these pants? Are they classic clown pants? Are they ice cream delivery guy pants? Are they construction pants? You know, all of those kinds of questions have to be answered. And I think, you know, all the decisions that we made felt in line again with his car, with his world, with the way Samoa Joe and Will Arnett uh, brought him to life. And that's that's how we went. But when you build a character from from zero to hero, like from the absolute raw material to real life, every single aspect of it is a question that has to be answered. And it's tough, actually. <laughs> no, I don't doubt it. I'm curious, though, so because there's like a particular image in my head, and I cannot remember, and I'm so sorry, they're going to just crucify me in the streets. I can't remember which Twisted Metal game it happens in, but I always remembered Sweet Tooth's hair being on fire Mm -hmm. and so the whole time i'm watching it i'm like this is just such a good look like they did such a good job bringing this to live action and then of course at the very end of the the penultimate episode of the season he lights his head on fire like completely spontaneously i mean i imagine it's cg it seems cg but i was curious do you have to plan any tricks ahead or, or like from the costuming side of things are there any things that you guys are are like okay we have to build up to that moment or we have to make sure that the rest of it kind of works with that what are the tricks of the trade there you know the fact that his hair the the gouging of the eye and the head on fire which is a version of the sweet tooth mask that, I mean, now lives on, you know, at towards the end of our show, but also that lives on from the video game series. We knew we had, to, we were going to get to that. So we were able to kind of work backwards with, okay, so what makes the most sense in terms of even situating the fake hair? You know, should we do fake hair? Should we not do fake hair? It just rounded it all out. So knowing that we had to get to that place actually answered some design questions for us to the beginning, because I'm sure as any fan watching Sweet Tooth from, you know, the beginning of the series and wondering why is his hair not on fire, you know, (laughs) finally paying it off. I mean, we really, that was so intrinsic in the design of the mask and the head harness. But to answer your question, we had quite a few versions of the mask, which was tricky because they're all handmade. You know, it's not like we printed them out of a 3D printer. They were hand sculpted, hand poured. The harnesses were all hand done. And so we they had to all match completely. And we did have a version that we knew was going to essentially get lit on fire. (laughs) But the other thing that we needed, and of course, you know, we didn't, this was an amazing visual effect, you know, but we needed a version of the mask where it would have been easier for visual effects if we somehow baked in some lights into the top of the mask so that we could really see what would eventually be the fire reflecting into the mask and that light reflecting onto the mask and onto the hair. So we did have uh, an LED rigged version and course driving doubles. I mean, Samoa Joe didn't need a stunt double per se. <laughs> of course, you know, he brings, he's the full package, but 
yeah, we had quite a few versions and knowing that it was going to eventually get lit on fire was a, a huge part of the prep process for it. I guess that's a good segue though, too, because we were talking earlier about how the show is obviously very violent, but I was curious because, and I've kind of always wondered this, obviously there's a lot of different stunts that have to be coordinated with all those different departments, but specifically from a costuming perspective, I mean, you also have to identify those wounds on the person as well. What type of challenge does that bring in terms of a show like Twisted Metal, where we're cutting up clothes left and right, and all of a sudden, you know... Now, you know, his head's on fire or his the mask is missing an eye or whatever it is. Thomas Hayden Church is getting, you know, in car wrecks and all kinds of stuff. Well, it is just so important to have all that information. And we did at the start. Unlike, uh, let's say, film where you have the script or at least, you know, the version of the script that will be the end product. A lot of times in television, it's one script after another and the story is kind of, you know, building and evolving. But recently, um, you know, I even think back to my time at Marvel working on Daredevil and it's been amazing how much work has been done to get most of the scripts or at least outlines done ahead of time because it's terrible to be sitting in a meeting and to, you know, have to say, way down in the season like oh well can we do this you know to the costume and then you have to sit there and be like no (laughs) (laughs) like you know you never want to be in that position so knowing that we needed quite a few of agent stone shirts and of course you know there's also the element of having to shoot out of order needing to establish you know blood and guts and gore before the actual fight happens. I mean, all of that is very tricky, but it is 100% the responsibility of a costume designer working on this type of project to make sure you bake that into the design and the process. It's not just about the color of stone shirt when it's clean. It's about the color of stone shirt when it's bloody. You know, what does that look like? And what is the blood going to do to the, you know, the dye that's been set into the shirt? And that is as much a part of the design as him being clean, you know, and the same goes for the sweet tooth mask. We used a kind of porous silicone that was very stiff but still allowed for a little bit of movement, you know, so it was a little bit more, it was better for, as opposed to being just a straight like polyurethane or something that was extremely stiff. But that being said, we had to treat it so that when the blood, you know, the blood would kind of sit a little bit on it and also drip as opposed to just like fly right off. Cause then you're like, well, what's that? You know, that's not very exciting. You know, you want to see him, as if the mask is his face. You know, you want to see it as if the blood coming from his eye is sitting on his cheek as opposed to just a plastic piece on top of his cheek where it would just drip right off. So all of those details have to be accounted for and sussed out in the design of it. Liz, other favorite looks or Easter eggs, things that you are really proud of ended up on the screen? I'm really proud of a lot of the characters that were kind of quick and you might classically think of as secondary, but are actually also straight from the game. And I think a lot of those moments were tricky because you either wanted to just bring it right from the game because it was very clear, 
to the audience that, oh, this is Carl and Jamie from the game, or, oh, this is Miranda Watson. She looks exactly like she does from the game. And I know I see that and I see her so quickly. Um, I mean, one of the things that Gianni mentioned is these very quick cut scenes, but they're very formative, you know, in this, in the video game series to kind of establish who these people are. And then you spend 99% of the time playing the game, you know, 3D in back of the car. We had to do a similar thing with some of these characters because we would see them maybe for a little bit more, but then they were in their car. So all the characters, you know, Watts, Bloody Mary, Carl and Jamie, even the very quick little snippets at the end, the Calypso character, I mean, that build took a really long time for a very short screen <laughs> presence, but you just know that he he is so important. And all of these characters from the game are so important to really take the time and treat them as if they're John Doe. It's just that the person playing this series is with John and quiet, you know, but Perhaps a person playing the series would be with Miranda for 99% of the time or with Carl and Jamie. And, and that's the kind of like real attention to detail that, I, you know, I credit to our, our department and my assistant costume designer, Tamika, and supervisor, Devin, and all the technicians and artists that we had working with us were able to, to bring to it. It's difficult because a lot of times in a television show, you know, the sort of weekly actors or the actors that come in for an episode and then fly out, you don't have as much time, you don't have as much budget, but I do feel proud of the way we're able to handle those, those particular characters. Yeah. <laughs> Cause obviously Bloody Mary, I think is like a total standout in her particular episode. Preacher's really, really fun. I was curious though, you had mentioned Calypso, who's obviously an iconic character, very, very important and integral to the Twisted Metal franchise. But then there's other little flashes of characters that give the impression of a far deeper underlying story for season two. So for example, Dollface, was that the plan from the outset? Did you know like, oh, we have to really pay attention to detail on this character because if we do get greenlit for season two, we're bringing this look exactly as is back. Well, I think that there's always room to, you know, to divert and change and to do whatever you need to do, you know, if there's a season two. But I did feel pressure from myself, not necessarily from any, you know, heightened pressure from elsewhere, but I did feel a sense of like these momentary glimpses of these major characters from the series there is a little bit of like the season two hanging on them in a, in a way, because it's, it's sort of like, well, do we want to see them? Do we want to see their stories? Are we visually intrigued? Are we curious? You know, there is a little bit of like, if we got to the finale and it's like Dollface and her army uh, and I mean, okay, we find out it's Sean's sister and that's like a mind blow, but it's sort of, a way of a designer saying like, I dare you to not have a season two. I just dare <laughs> you, you know, like even like how are they, you know, if they incorporate Axel, how is anybody going to do that character? You know, I did feel like I wanted to, even though it was the end of the season, everybody's exhausted, you know, they're for, you know, a couple pages of character, they're in this, you know, the final script. I wanted to make sure that we really honed in because it, it did feel a little bit like, you wanted people to be intrigued and interested and help them to sort of, you know, hope for a season two. 
And also just, you know, it's always very exciting to be able to go back to the game in a way and to be able to sort of like, okay, we've taken these departures with some of these other characters, but now we get to dive into, you know, the doll face lore and what can we bring with it? What are we going to sort of divert from? You know, that's always a really, I, I really love those challenges. Well, I think we are all looking forward to a season two. They'd be <laughs> foolish not to put one up. I mean, this season really is a setup for what I think is going to turn out to be even more of the game with the actual contest, which is the basis for Twisted Metal. And again, they're not asking us, Liz, but, you know, do put in a good word and let them know that I think they've set this up really well. For season two. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. The fan response has been really exciting. And, you know, it's so fun. Um, I just saw on Instagram peacock created this little this uh image of like well if you like twisted metal check out our other shows you know <laughs> it's just like, and i kind of wanted to be like well if you like twisted metal let's do it again you know? <laughs> but, it, but it is cool that it's like a landmark now that even like even peacock is being like oh we got people watching this like let's bring more people yeah, to people stay yeah. on the platform <laughs> That's great. That, I think that's an endorsement in and of itself. So yeah, Peacock can just listen to their own words of wisdom. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. You've got the below the line endorsement as well. On that note, we're going to call it a wrap. Great having you guys both here. Thank you so much. Yeah, what a great combo. Oh, yeah, it was awesome. Thank you so much. This is a blast. Hey, I'm kind of liking this co-host thing. Johnny, hey, you brought it. <laughs> Listeners, please. We can talk about we can talk about Daredevil more. We can yeah. Keep this trio going, man. This is great. Listeners, you let us know what you think. You'll find my contact info on our website below the line one door dot biz. That's B I Z. You'll also find past episodes and links to all of our social media. Please check it out. Liz, where else can we be seeing your work? You can just follow me at Liz Bastola on all the socials. You know, hopefully there'll be some more exciting stuff soon. Thanks, Liz. Gianni, remind people where they can catch the Bad Movies podcast. Oh, yeah, on all podcasting platforms where the Bad Movies podcast. And we don't just talk about bad movies. We talk about movies we really like as well. Yeah, my buddy Ryan and I had a great time talking about Planet of the Apes with you last year, and I hope we can do it again soon. Oh, my God. I love that episode, and I cannot wait to get you back on, Skid. My closing credits, thanks to Curtis Five for our music, John Wan for our logo, and to all of our listeners, I appreciate you. Please rate us wherever you get your podcast and tell your friends. Thanks again from Below the Line.